1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Maria Haim, uh, who is a professor and chair of the Department of Religion at Amherst College. We'll be speaking about a brand new uh, uh, Princeton University Press publication, Words for the Heart A Treasury of Emotions from Classical India. Maria, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, Raj.
1: So you'll have to tell us how did you get into emotion, or the study of emotion or thinking about emotion?
2: Yeah, well, um, I most of my work um before this book was really centered on um, or at least in the last couple of decades, centered on, I guess you could say the moral psychology of Pali Buddhism. Um been very immersed in the Abhidhamma tradition and and particularly the work of um buddhigosa, this fifth century Pali Buddhist thinker. And so for a long time, I've been interested in psychology and emotions and intentions and motivations and um, a whole range of types of things. Um, And I've published work on particular emotions within the Pali tradition. Um, But I hadn't necessarily figured out how to talk about emotion more broadly within the Indic tradition. Um, and so this book came about where I was finished with a lot of the Buddhagosa work um, needing to come out of this kind of deep immersion in one system and one thinker and one obsessive kind of um, uh, deep dive into him and, um, I encountered uh, Timothy uh, T- uh, Tiffany Watt Smith's little book. It's called The Book of Human Emotion, and she's an emotions researcher. And she had drawn together um, emotion words from all different languages and all different traditions and sort of put together a cute little uh, book of anecdotes about different emotions. And I began to wonder, maybe this is what I need to kind of go wide instead of deep into one thinker. And how could I uh, gather up some of the many emotion words I've encountered in the Indian sources over the decades? Uh, And then it really occurred to me that this idea of a kosha, um, a treasury, which is, of course, an Indian genre, uh, might be a great way to gather them up. So a kosha can be a thesaurus. We have Amara's kosha, um, a word book. Um, but it can also be a collection of poems or short literary pieces or philosophical um, reflections. And so it seemed to be the right idea for what I wanted to do. I didn't want to write a dictionary. I didn't want to write, a, write, write an encyclopedia or something comprehensive, um, but I liked the particularist approach by or a lexical kind of approach by looking closely at particular words, I could draw out some of the nuance and the thinking um, in Indian sources quite broadly. Uh, so the kosha then so and then I really began to run as you can see in the book with this treasury um, metaphor you know that these are gems drawn from all different sort of mind from all different uh, sources and in uh, Indian thought very broadly conceived and so I had the great privilege and luxury of just reading across every genre Um, it has Buddhist sources in it of course but also the epics and uh, I drew heavily from Rasa theory. Um, I looked at a lot of Shastra. I looked at a lot of philosoph- philosophical texts. I looked at many different kinds of poems. I got into medical texts. Um, so it was this wonderful opportunity to kind of just read really widely and gather up things that I thought were beautiful or fascinating, and collect them in this in this treasury.
1: You no, know, you you ended. Uh, uh, y- 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 just now, on um, a great place to segue into the process, right? There's so much to choose from. You um, know, I mean, what was that journey like for you in terms of deciding um, what to allocate, where, what to include or not? Um, ways in which you were thinking of emotion or emotionality.
2: Yeah, so a really great question. Um, well, I. I kind of early settled on, I mean, I I really feel that this English word emotion is very restricted in some ways. It's probably not a term we can live without. And it kind of, you know, opens up what the kinds of phenomena I want to look at. Um, But I didn't want to heavily police emotions. Um, You know, there's a whole literature in Western philosophy about what constitutes an emotion, the kind of ontological questions about emotion. And I see this word emotion is very shallow historically. Um, for most of English in the history of the English language, people did not use this word emotion, it's very recent. Um, so it's parochial and it's provincial, and it has a lot more to do with modern English speakers than anything carved in nature or anything we see sort of historically Uh, deep even in the Western tradition to say nothing of the Indian traditions um, where we have very different meta meta categories and very different conceptions. And so I needed this word emotion, but I didn't want to be too tethered to it. Um, So as I try to talk about in my introduction, I really kind of looking at emotion-like words, dispositions, moods, um, uh, very broadly conceived and didn't want to have a lot of strictures around that. And then in terms of how I found things, I started with things that I already knew. So um, I started with a lot of terms and uh, that I've already either written about or been interested in from Buddhist philosophy um, and Buddhist psychology. Um, and then I, the probably the most pleasurable part of the project was just going back and reading things I hadn't read um, you know, since graduate school, perhaps, or had only read in passing or only dipped into once in a while. So I read and we have these wonderful, uh, the Clay Sanskrit Library and all of the um, materials coming up with the Morthy Classical Library of India and other many other sources. And so I read a lot of stuff in translation which was just a a treat to to read across literature in so many different ways. Um, And so I really followed the wonderful translations of so many scholars in our field and when something would jump out at me you know, I'd wonder, Oh, what, what is the Sanskrit word for that? Or what is, you know, and then I'd go back and find it. And then that would become an entry. So a lot of it, I would say that was the the most fun part of the treasury was that just discovery, you know, just looking at reading a lot of stuff and looking uh, for words. And then I felt like I had to do some work that like, if I hadn't encountered them, like I had to, you know, there are just some terms we have to deal with, you know, to deal with, um, Words for craving, trishna. Um, I had to deal with, you know, the gunas. Not, I had to deal with, but I had to go in and research particular terms. And so I went on basis of my instincts, where you know, or what we might imagine, where I might go to to look for some of these terms. Um, so there was a research element of it too of just trying to track down who has a good discussion of um, particular terms that I would want to draw from Um, but as you may know or at least what I try to say in the introduction is that I'm not trying to be comprehensive or encyclopedic or generic it's really more
1: generative
2: yeah it's more to be generative I'm much more interested not in conveying any notion that I'm getting at you know, basic notion of these emotions or generic notion of them. I'm rather much more interested in the poignant anecdote or the story or the philosophical nuggets that pulls out uh, or even evokes uh, an emotional experience rather than trying to, to be, um, to speak of emotions, of, of these terms in general, in very general ways. So that was, um, so it's a little idios It is, I shouldn't say a little, it is idiosyncratic and <laughs> it's quirky and it's, um, other people would have come, come up with different emotion terms and certainly different passages if they were doing something of the same project. Um, but I'm hoping that, um, Readers find pleasure in some of these terms or find, find new ideas, or that maybe this even begins to open up to study the emotions and and it for you know Indian text or scholars of Indian texts um, further. So um it wasn't meant to be entirely, you know, systematic research project. It was also it was meant from the beginning to be something that was fun and
1: creative.
2: crosses over into uh, a more g- general readership than any of my other work has done.
1: Oh, without without question, it lends itself to um, to more general readership, people interested in ideas and experiences in you know, all things in Dick. Um, you know, it, I completely understand uh, why the word emotion is used because it's you know it's a great shorthand in English to point to you know something much more oceanic you know um and 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 uh, and yet of course it's so much more than what we think of as emotions in english and and you know to me you know um i have i have i have papers that say i know religion or or sanskrit narrative but i'll be really honest in my heart of hearts my core expertise in this life is people you know how people work you know what drives them personal growth work and and really so many of the entries to my mind they they really get at the guts of the human experience, what we think of as the human experience, what, what humans experience palpably and subjectively interacting with the world and others. So um, certainly um, uh, it's, it's wonderfully atypical for an academic publication and probably well, to be well-received by a larger audience. But just to give listeners a sense, I mean, there's there, there are, if I'm not mistaken, 177, that's right. uh, entries and just uh, randomly uh, I'll just pick one randomly here Tushti, satisfaction. okay, we've all had the experience of satisfaction, perhaps uh, one would hope um, but but this is, gives you a sense of of what an entry might be like. Satisfaction in the sense of contentment is usually a good thing. See Santosha. but when it becomes complacency, it can hinder progress and development. so it's wonderfully anchored. the experience is anchored in something of an Indic mindset or an attitude towards, you know, a, a, a spiritual growth. Um, uh, it, and it goes on to, to, to mention some of the satisfactions that delimit <laughs> uh, or, or uh, impede restrain our, our potential for growth and, and some that actually su- support it. So it's rich, right? It's there's emotionality or there's philosophy, there's spirituality. Um, what do you see as, the primary purpose or purposes uh, of the book? Like, what do you hope it would affect?
2: Um, well, for me, it will be enough if, if readers find pleasure in the entries. Um, it really is meant to be, you know, if, if I succeed in any way, bringing out something you know deep gut level with human experience it's only because i'm following these indian texts and, and how they're doing it um so that to me is it, you know that that'll be a win if um if people find something and find entries that speak to them um as human beings uh and show that the incredible nuance and texture with which indian texts have have got at that um so that's the that's my main goal, actually. Um, and so in that sense, I I'm, I think of it as kind of almost a, like a literary text. Um, if it winds up, you know, stimulating more work and emotions. I mean, I've been surprised as I've kind of uh, been looking at a range of different scholarly works, partly to create this project is how few times you can open the index and find the word emotion or open the index and find particularly emotion words of any of our scholarship, right? It just hasn't been thematized. We thematize other things that aren't part of the linguistic world of ancient India. We thematize religion. That's a completely Western construct. We thematize ethics. We can thematize law. We thematize so many different things, but we haven't thematized emotion. Um, and and seeing how deeply, you know, or you know, how deeply it's operating operating in um in the mind, you know, in the in the works and the the stories and the narratives from India. So um if it if it by thematizing this word emotion or related words, it 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 helps to generate further research, then that would also be a win for me.
1: Were there particular surprises in your research or terms that that sort of stayed with you, or or stuck out in your mind, or you saw differently through this project.
2: Um, yeah, um, one word that I spent some quite a bit of time thinking about is suka. So this is a word for pleasure, or happiness, or bliss. And one of the things that I just sort of got really deeply into. Maybe even my sukha uh, entry got a little bit too long, Um, but what I was fascinated with is that um, in the Pali sources, the Pali Buddhist sources, sukha really is a term for uh, nirvana. Um, But it's also, readers will know, or Sanskritists and Pali scholars will know that uh sukha is also kind of the opposite of dukkha so it just means pleasure um, and, and so one of the things that i began to see as i tried to chart it uh, or trace it in the in the pali suttas is the extent to which uh, the buddha is being extremely playful with this word sukha um on the one hand uh, rejecting sukha pleasure as the kind of pleasure that's based in desire the satisfaction of desire on the other hand talking about sukha by changing its meaning sometimes in the very same passage to refer to nirvana um, a kind of happiness that has nothing to do with the satisfaction of desire and so there's some very sublime passages in the in the Pali suttas about this where um, for example, the Buddha as a young man before he had really even begun his religious quest. He was still living in the palace, but he has this experience under a jambu tree where he um, he sits down and and he experiences what some of the the jhanas, these advanced meditation states, and then he he pulls out of it and and he wonders, well, why why am I afraid of these kinds of sukha that have nothing to do with the satisfaction of or the gratification of desire? is he pulls out of, why am i afraid of that and then his next thought is i am not afraid of the sukka that has nothing to do with sensual desire and so there's a kind of really interesting kind of work that he's doing with happiness and dukkha gets all the attention in the early buddhist stuff that it's all about dukkha and getting rid of suffering but the flip side of it of course is this idea of sukha. and then you have moments where the the buddhist followers will ask him how could nirvana be sukkha? What kind of sukha involves no pleasure, no gratification? And and the Buddha will just say really sublime things, just that monks, that it nirvana doesn't involve pleasure. That itself is this happiness I'm talking about. So I got kind of into that for a while. Um, I've been very interested also in in just beautiful things that popped up. Um, I love the the Baba uh, treatment of Chakshuraga. This is a little thing um, I love. Chakshuraga, and he talks about I love is what um, people who have some kind of relationship that they that's maybe written in the stars. Um, that uh, when they when their eyes first meet, they're in, they they love, they discover a deep love. Um, and I think that that uh, Baba treatment of this is so beautiful in the way that he talks about. Um, how because the poets have taught us this word i love we know it's real um and so that's some of the thinking that's going on in some of the text, particularly the uh the copy of material and the literary aesthetics that uh, the poets give us terms that um that Make reality. They they teach us what's real. They bring into being what is real, and that's deeply part of Bhava Bhuti's thought. Um, but it co- pops up in these wonderful ways with emotion terms. That when we have a term for emotion, then we can then experience it. Um, so these are just a couple of examples of things that I was just as I was thinking about this this morning, what would I talk about? Is some of my favorite <laughs> moments of discovery. Um, but I can talk about more. But I'm sure you have other questions. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they're they, well much like the book itself I I've said this comment probably half a dozen times that my question always meant to be um generative more than limiting and so it's it's about the conversation um that you know uh, just to give listeners another taste here's another randomly a vihara vihara isn't an emotion <laughs> it's a condition But it is a condition so saturated with feeling that it must be included among our treasures. Vihara is the state of being separated from the one you love. And in Sanskrit letters, it is ground zero of the deepest longing, anguish and despair of the human heart as it pines for the distant lover. Vihara is the condition that makes possible the agonizing relish that that is Vipralamba, love and separation. It's just, it's lovely. Lovely uh I I can envision a number of applications for this type of work. But I wonder uh it certainly the, certainly there'll be a variety of responses to this, but who do you think um this is most for who might most benefit from having a look at this kind of work?
2: Um well, I, I don't know who, who will benefit or in benefit in what <laughs> way, but um, I, you know, I, I did want from the beginning, so I'm sort of straddling two horses um, in a complicated way, because I did want this to be accessible to a general readership. Um So I really wanted to keep some of the, the jargon and the sense you know, the deep apparatus. I mean, every Every entry, as you know, from looking at it has, you know, I give references for it, but I'm not just pulling this stuff out of thin air. It comes from particular texts that I wanted scholars to be able to track down and look at for themselves. So that was deeply important to me. But my first audience was always um, a general readership that people who maybe who are interested in emotions from other traditions. So I've been doing some work with classicists um, who are interested in, you know, expanding in a more global vision of what work on as emotions or so people who are doing emotions research in different areas could pick up my book on Indian material and get access to it and see the richness here and see the possibilities here. So I wanted that audience. I wanted people who are generally interested in India, but are not necessarily scholars, but who know the epics or want to know more about yoga traditions or Buddhism or something that they could pick it up and, and get access to some of these, uh, ideas. So, um, so that's the, you know, I don't know, you know, who of those is, you know, gonna, you know, how this will sit. I really don't know how, it, how it's gonna land or who it's gonna benefit if it benefits anybody. But I do hope that these different kinds of audiences will find something in it just because of the diversity and the range of things I'm talking about that might make them think about human experience in fresh ways. That would be, that would be my hope.
1: produced this book um, and spent a fair bit of time researching and thinking about these uh, the word bhava comes to mind, you know, these moods mindsets uh, uh, modes, right, these emotions broadly conceived do you, in your particular perspective, see um, uh, see in the Indic tradition that there are certain emotions that are harped on or fleshed out in a way that may not be so in our sort of modern western mindset you I know mean, what 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 strikes you about this in the context
2: um yeah so well, certainly i think i mean i've leaned pretty so you mentioned bhava so i lean pretty heavily into rasa theory uh which was a great pleasure for me to kind of think about some of india's systems approaches or systematic approaches so it's not just a here's a bunch of words. It's also what does Rasa theory where we see Indian thought, you know, thinkers kind of theorizing their own experience, particularly in the realm of aesthetics, you know, what, what can they teach us? And so The word bhava, of course, is such bigger than emotion, um, ways of being, I think it might be how I translate it. Um, So some of the entries are are bringing out kind of these bigger theoretical systems that I think think that would be good for, um, I mean, the treatment of aesthetics and Bharata's texts and his successors and the literary traditions is such a fascinating, um, treatment of aesthetic—not just aesthetic experience, but also philosophical anthropology of what humans are like emotionally, uh, in ways that I think scholars are just beginning to sort of explore. But in terms of words that um, we just don't have anything for in inter- in English, or that you know that they give, the carve up experience so differently and that, that, that are, but deep preoccupations in the Indic traditions. I like some of the the vocabulary of kleshas. Um, Kleshas are these kind of depravities or afflictions that, um, that not just Buddhist thinkers, but also all the, the ascetic traditions are grappling with in one way or another. How do you get rid of, uh, deep-seated negative emotions. Another related word is asavas uh, in the Pali tradition, that, a word that I translate in its most literal way, oozings. So that we have these kleshas and oozings. Asavas are deeply seated um emotional temperamental dispositions that are have been in part of our experience from the beginning of time right they come to us from across lives um and they have to be uprooted they have to be you know how do you get rid of them so it's both a kind of deeply um grim picture of what human beings are like in some way we've got anger and we have Ignorance we have delusion and we, we're just driven by lust and greed in, in really deep ways. Um, but it's also an extraordinarily optimistic picture that actually nirvana or moksha is a complete eradication of uh these uh dispositions that I think uh maybe other psychologies take to be uh fundamental and basic to human our human endowments. So I think that kind of um stuff i think um, some of the wor- the words i have in there in vasanas and the samskaras this deep this idea of deep traces on us from the distant past um that is pretty important to the religious literatures but also a deeply important uh kind of poetic conceit as we know from that very very beautiful verse that's quoted all over the place um in the recognition of Shakuntala where uh the vasanas are those deep memory traces from the past so that when dushanta has forgotten shakuntala he um he hears beautiful music that um that reminds him of a distant lover in the past but that he's forgotten because he hears something beautiful and so what uh, sometimes the the religious and ascetic literatures are quite disapproving of of how deep our dispositions run, uh, the poets pick up with great beauty to think about. I think perhaps the most romantic con- conceit ever that that love is 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 picking up something that was there in a distant past, um, and that be- beauty and beautiful music and beautiful poetry can can bring it forward for us. Um, so that kind of stuff, I think is, I think we get just a very different psychology than we have in in the Western tradition that, um, that opens up possibilities for what we might think
1: about. Are there certain texts or genres of texts in particular that you rely on for the book?
2: So, um, I do a lot with the epics. So you'll see a lot of material from the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, um, which I think are great studies of human experience. Um, and I do a lot, as I just mentioned, with Rasa theory. Bharata not only gives us this, this so this early uh, text text about dramaturgy, Bharata, maybe third or fourth century, wrote this book on dramaturgy, the Natya Shastra, that um, gives us a whole theory about not entirely clear how it all works, but the rudiments of a the theory about the relationship of human ex- emotional experience and, and the refinement of that into rasa or uh, kind of aesthetic experience. And so in that he has a deep treatment of uh, a lot of emotion words, lots of definitions in them. And this inaugurates a whole uh, millennium beyond a, a further exploration of these terms and how they produce and how how emo- aesthetic experience is produced. So I lean very heavily into that. Um, but of course, I'm also working on the, the Buddhist psychology, <laughs> um, particularly the Abhidharma, Abhidharma traditions, which you also have extremely meticulous um disaggregation of human experience into you know very long lists of of terms not all of which are emotions but some of which are that are all interacting. Um, so it's a kind of ana- analytical approach to experience to break it down into smaller bits and then to see how those smaller bits of experience interact. And so that to me was uh, like another really important systems approach to to work with. So, um, and then I was just after that just looking at literature, um, reading the wonderful translations of so many of our colleagues, you know, who who do beautiful work on on poetry, David Shulman and Sheldon Pollock and Martha Selby and and others. Um, that that just you know that give us a lot of pleasure.
1: Um- all uh, brilliant uh trans as you mentioned um um i w- will say there's something utterly alluring about the work of david chulman <laughs> um we hope to have him on the podcast soon speaking of folks we've had on the podcast the, my last guest happened just happened to be um um chakravarti van uh-huh. and you each acknowledge each other <laughs> in in your forwards it was fascinating um Is this work that you will continue in some sense?
2: Yeah, so I've had a really productive um, set of conversations with Ram Prasad uh, about... All of these texts and he was actually very extremely helpful for me in terms of he knows the Indian tradition so well so he could point me to um particular you know areas that I needed to look at and kind of I think he saved me probably from a lot of gaffes and mistakes I would have otherwise had in the book but we've also worked with another colleague Rose Roy Zohar um in in israel on a, a volume together that was a kind of uh, a bloomsbury handbook of emotions so we've we've had a conversation for some time about how to carve out this area of emotions research and what that might look like so that's been really productive he's more of his work has been on sort of bodily experience um although now he's turning to emotions um i think and kind of working more systematically than my kind of lexical approach did but in terms of my uh, further directions, I d- I'm not sure where I'm going to go. with. I Right now, I'm very deeply into translating. So I've had the privilege of uh, being asked to translate the Melinda Panha, uh, the questions of King Melinda, which is a really important Buddhist text um, that kind of describes a, a conversation, perhaps an imagined conversation, or perhaps a real conversation between a Greek king and a Buddhist monk and the in the first century or so bce um and so and I'm, I'm doing that for the Murti classical library of india so i've been working on that and i i've discovered that i really love translation and i really like translating so i think my i'm kind of taking a little break right now but i think you know where i want to go next is with more translation work and part of that was because the because of the treasury i got to follow so many choices people made about translation i learned a huge amount from um from go, you know, seeing how translations work, and then trying to figure out how I, how I could, you know, think about them in my own within my own framework of the treasury, and um, so just learning that from people like David Shulman, and so many others, uh, was 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 good for my thinking about what it what the whole business of translation is.
1: I'm so um, glad to hear, actually, that you'll be applying because it just occurred to me. It occurred to me that you know. Uh, that you must have internalized so much about the process um so i'm really glad to hear you'll be consciously and unconsciously applying that um in rendering translations for us um but could you say just a a word about your process if you've had one what's the translation process like for you
2: well, um, again, I had never really seen myself as a translator, right? so I'm just figuring this out. Um, I had seen myself more working in philosophy, so I, the whole turn to the literary has been um, in developing a literary sensibility and uh, has been part of, I mean, I think you're right to say that I internalized a lot um, when doing the Treasury, and I hadn't seen that that would be an, an outcome, but it has help me. So, so all I can speak of is how I've been working on the Melinda Panha, the the questions of Melinda. And I find it to be absolute wonderful pleasure. I mean, what's nice about it is you're not casting out there with your own argument. You're following somebody else. You're just trying to put the right words and the right ideas into place. And so I've actually found it to be a, a more calming um, practice than a lot of our scholarly, you know, argument driven work that we do. And I find that it, it has its own pacing. And as long as you're coming to it, Regularly, and you set aside time to get in there. If if it's one paragraph a day, that's amazing, you know. If, if you can get a page or two a day, you know, or a page or two a week, that's amazing, you know. But so it has its own kind of pacing. As long as you're just keeping the game, um, as you follow along. And with the Melinda Panha, it, it brought me into all kinds of other things. Like so, it's, this is a text that ranges across Buddhist philosophy, but also so many other places of of Indian thought and in ancient India. I've had to research the flora and the fauna and the the kinds of food people eat. And, um, you know, so I never know one day to the next, what I'm going to have to plunge into to figure out what he's talking about. So that also has been just kind of nice to, to, to just be following a lot, you know, following a thinker and trying to understand him and uh, trying to put it into English. And it just, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to stop translating. That's what I sort of figured out.
1: <laughs> I Beautiful. don't know if I'll
2: ever write any other kind of book again. I hope to just keep
1: translating. Brilliant. Uh, I find it so, you know, clearly as scholars, our left brains work one would hope fairly well. Uh, compared to the average bear perhaps um and yet it, it, monographs the best monographs are the ones it, it, in my particular view that that um exhibit a fair bit of creativity and uh, storytelling and and, and presentation um, um whether the scholar has a, a flair for literature or not there is there will inevitably inevitably be uh, an umsha a, a pinch of 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 of, of sort of um, um, literary pizzazz in their work for it to be accessible and whole in some sense. Um, it, it, so so for me, producing scholarship is it's it, there's it's cr- it's creative, but it's primarily analytic. And translating is the opposite, where it's primarily creative, with a you know with a whole bunch of analysis going in and thinking. And I've been wonderfully spoiled, uh, such that the um, uh, my primary objects of uh, of study um, that, that online has been uh, translated by the Goldman Project, um, Coburn's done a solid translation of the Devi Mahatmya that I, I quote even in both my books. Um, and it's only in the past six months or so that I've <laughs> that I've sat down and I've churned out a translation, a new translation of the Devi Mahatmya, mm-hmm. oh, Wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. where you know, in, in to my mind, I thought, oh, well, it's it's been done, like you know, but really, it's been it's been thirty years, and you know, it's uh, from some encouragement from some colleagues and some demands from some students. Uh, <laughs> Uh, apparently it's time so i, I i've turned out a, a new translation and the the process is so it's it's so it's just different it's just such a different process i mean they're time ty- like what do you do when you taste something in a verse but it's not in any of the words in that verse <laughs> do you add an adjective in english because that's what you feel you need to add, and yet if somebody was 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 directly comparing the Sanskrit to the English, wait a minute that adjective isn't isn't there in the Sanskrit you know at what point do you sacrifice the literary from what you perceive to be what you taste? It's palpable to you, the verses mm-hmm. sort of saying in um but uh. We'll see. We'll see how, how well the translations received. I actually did a little bit, uh, I did a, a recent public book called the stories behind the poses where there was 50 vignettes from the Puranas and, and, and the epics, but that was, you know, a lot of that was rendering and retelling. It was just, you know, you know, looking over the Sanskrit or going over from memory a bit of both and, and literally telling it as a, I would tell it in a class in a, but in a more literary and sustained manner. But, um, uh, perhaps at some point we'll have a podcast dedicated to the to, to, to the um the perils and, and the beauty of translation Yeah. anyhow i've said too much clearly um is there anything else about the book that you hoped we touch on today um
2: not that i can think of um you know i I, yeah, no, I think that's probably um, much of what I wanted to, to hopefully have come through. I, I do appreciate your comments on translation. We are, it does feel like a different part of our, of our work. And um, how do you, how do you produce a translation that um, is true to the text, but also works in English. And, and so one of the things I've learned from the Murthy is that you have to, I think that we don't need to follow Sanskrit syntax. We don't have to have these kind of convoluted, you know, passive voice constructions. We really do need to follow English syntax, um, and make it, make it live in English. Um, and so, and yet, you know, how do you, so it's really an art, I think, more than a, even a science um, of how you, you're tr- you know, you get the meaning and you're not adding too much, but you're also making it work in a completely different linguistic world. Um, yeah.
1: Fascinating and appropriate place to end. Um, thank you for appearing on the podcast today.
2: Thank you, Raj. I really appreciate it.
1: For those of you listening, um, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Miraheim on a brand new, fascinating, rich publication called Words for the Heart, a treasury of emotions from classical India. It's a brand new uh, Princeton University Press. Um, Check it out. I think you might be surprised what you learn about ancient India, um, Indic philosophy, spirituality, and um, the human experience itself. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and uh, keep contemplating um, emotions across cultures. Take care.